Well, here we are. The past four weeks, uh, we've been talking as we go through the sermon series uh, a little bit about uh, kind of deconstructing aspects of maybe some aspects of your relationship with God. And I was thinking about this past week as we had a construction zone going on behind us here. Uh, it looks pretty clean right now, but if you were here a day and a half ago or so, it was full-on construction zone <laughs> taking place as we were looking behind some drywall and seeing what was uh, beneath the scenes a little bit. And that did remind me of the series that we're in. As we're looking at these different postures, different ways, if you will, that people tend to relate to God. And we've been kind of looking behind those a little bit, uh, seeing what's behind the front of those postures. Or if you know what I mean, we're talking about the, the different positions that people take, these different postures we take towards how we relate to God, whether we see it as, as life over God, life under God, life from God, life for God. And if you've been with us, you recall we've been talking about how each of these have some merit. They're not completely to be scrapped and thrown away. It's, but we need to look at them and see what's really the purpose and method behind them and understand how they do have some truth, but at the same time all fall short of giving us the full experience of God that he intended for us. And so for the past few weeks, we look behind those things. And uh, in a brief real summary of what we've gone through the last couple of weeks is we've talked about how it's not wrong to, to want to serve God. God invites us into relationship with him, to join him in what he's doing, and to serve alongside him in, in his purposes and plans. However, do we find our identity in who God is and our relationship to him, or do we find our identity in the things that we do? We've talked about how it's not wrong to be blessed by God. God enjoys and delights in pouring down blessings upon his children, and he invites us to bring our needs and requests to him. But the question we wrestled with that week is, but what do we value more? Do we value the gifts we receive, or do we value more the gift giver, the thing, the person, God, from whom all these gifts come? And we also talked about how it's not wrong to obey God. That's pretty much inherent to the word Lord. If we're going to refer to him as our Lord, there's a sense of obedience that goes along with it. But that week we, we wrestle with the idea of, but are we following the letter of the law and by doing so missing the heart of God that exists behind the words of the law? And so we've come to this point of anticipation where we kind of need to start rebuilding a little bit. We've torn some things down. Now we need to come to this point in the series where we start to rebuild and wrestle with that question, well, what does it therefore then mean to, to be in relationship with God? And that's where we find ourselves today and going forward to the end of the series, right to the end of November, talking about what does it mean to be in relationship with God? How do we assemble that? So that before we go and do anything for, before we go because of him, we understand that our hearts and our minds first and foremost need to be centered upon him. And as we do that, and we experience his presence in our lives, there's this outpouring of love, there's this outpouring of that experience that, that compels us and propels us to go forward to do, to serve, to obey, to, to understand the blessings that we receive. And, and we're going to unpack this a little more in the weeks ahead, and it's, I think it's a really important thing for us to understand when we look at our relationship with God. That's, that's why I included a couple additional sermons into this series. If you recall, back in week two, I introduced this idea of three callings that we all have, three callings that followers of Christ have, and those who are journeying towards Christ have in their lives as well. On week two, we talked about our highest calling. And the highest calling is that first and foremost, we are called to be in relationship with the Father through the Son. And this highest calling is a foundational calling. 
It exists for everybody in the world, whether you are currently a follower of Jesus Christ or if you're journeying towards that, if you're contemplating that, considering it. Wherever you are in that journey, this call exists in your life to be in relationship with the Father through the Son. And we talked that week about how this foundational call is, is basically an invitation from, from the triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, who exist in perfect, eternal unity and harmony and community within themselves, stretched out a hand and invites us into that community with them. And this was made possible by Jesus Christ, who came to reveal the kingdom of God to all people, who came to give his life to remove our sins, to, to remove those things that separate us from being in community with God. That's our highest calling. But it's also the, the initiatory step, the, the first step or the first decision that we make to enter into a relationship with God. And if you missed that week, you can go to our website at westmeadows.org and you can find it under listen or watch. You can watch the sermon or you can even listen to the sermon uh, to catch up on that one if you missed it. But today I want to add to that. I want to add another calling to our highest calling. This is something that's referred to as our common calling. It's because every person who makes that profession of faith then finds himself in a situation of going, okay, well, after I've made that decision, what do I do next? What happens after that? Do I just sort of sit back and, and just wait? Or is there intentionality? Is there purpose that comes after that decision? And that's what we want to talk about today is our common calling with God. And, and Jesus summarizes for us in, in kind of a, a one verse that we're going to look a little more closely at today. He said this in, in John 14. He said, Jesus said, anyone who loves me, anyone who is in relationship with me, anyone who considers themselves to be a follower of Jesus will obey my teachings. This is the basis of the common call that exists for all of us. The common calling can very simply and generally be understood as, as all of the commands of Scripture that all followers of Jesus Christ, regardless of, of when they lived, past or present or future, regardless of what part of the world they live in, age, gender, those sorts of things, all followers of Jesus Christ of all times have this common calling to follow the commands of Scripture. Things that we're familiar with, perhaps, if, if we've opened our Bibles and read through the teachings of Jesus and, and through the prophets and the Old Testament, things like we are called to love one another, to pray for those who persecute you, to give to the needy, to forgive those who wrong you, to honor mom and dad, to don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't covet. Share your faith. Share your hope that you have in Jesus Christ when opportunities come. And, and literally hundreds of other ones that we could find in Scripture. And at first, they seem pretty straightforward. Because they're somewhat familiar to people who have been in that relationship for a while. And it seems simple enough where we could just open the Bible, we could, we could flip pages to find one, we could read it, and then we could go try to do it. But, but let's not mistake here. Let's not mistake common with simple. Because there's absolutely nothing simple about these callings. They may be common to all people, but by no means are they simple for people to do. And, and I think we can say that because first and foremost, these teachings of Jesus tend to run counter to our natural tendencies, don't they? Like even just the list I just mentioned, how many of us naturally on our own just absolutely love everybody? Probably not too many. How many of us on our own, under our own natural tendencies, want to pray for those who persecute us? How many of us want to take what we have and give to the needy? Want to forgive those who have wronged us? 
Kids, do we naturally want to obey mom and dad? Does that come naturally to our inherent selves? You see, these are common perhaps, but they are by no means simple. But secondly, and this is what we're going to spend most of our time on today, is I think that these are common but not simple because we misunderstand the purpose. We must understand the why behind Jesus' command to obey him. Let's think of it this way. Why do you think kids obey their parents? Why do you obey your boss? Why do you obey teachers? Why do we obey the laws of the land of Canada that we live in? If we were to discuss this a little bit, I think we'd find that there are two common reasons. One is to avoid punishment. Where we know that if we break the rules, if we go contrary to the will of mom and dad, if we don't follow the boss's instructions, if we break the law of Canada, there's consequences. So we abide by these things to avoid punishment. We don't want to get grounded. We don't want to get caught speeding because we get a fine. We don't want to go do a bunch of robberies because we'll end up in jail. There's punishment associated with it, so we abide by these things to avoid punishment. Another potential reason that you don't is because there's this attempt to prove that we're moral people. You say, you know, even if there wasn't a punishment to go with that, I just wouldn't do it because I'm not a bad guy. And I want the world to know that I'm not like those people who would. I'm a moral person, so I choose, punishment or not, I simply choose to not steal, to, to not harm other people. I choose to not murder anybody, punishment or otherwise. So if we look at these two main reasons that a lot of people would abide by laws and rules that exist, we can generally summarize that by saying we do it to avoid punishment and to prove that we're good. Now, if we apply this same thinking to our relationship with God, why do we obey his teachings? Well, in the same line of logic, we say we obey his teachings because we want to avoid something. We want to avoid maybe going to hell, for instance. We, we want to make sure that our salvation is secure, so we obey. Or perhaps we choose to obey because we want to validate. We, we understand that we're saved by grace, that we're not saved by works or anything of ourselves. We understand that, and yet our obedience is perhaps aligned up with this idea of, well, well, I somehow have to prove my worthiness of that salvation. And so I'll obey because, therefore, I can prove that I'm good. I want to suggest to you today that those are not the primary reasons that Jesus says that if you love him, you'll obey him. I want to suggest to you that it's not about that because your salvation is secured. That's what the highest calling is about. The highest calling is about when you enter into a relationship with the Father through the Son, you are sealed. Your name is written in the book of life. Your eternal destiny is secured, not because of your worthiness, not because of what you did and earned it, but because of Jesus and what he did and our affiliation and association with him that makes it possible for us to be in relationship with the Father. So there must be another motivation beyond punishment and morality. And I want to suggest to you today that we want to obey the teachings of Jesus because we share in something with him. Because we share in his mission. We share in his values. We share in his goals. We're a part of something when we are in relationship with the Father through the Son. And so think of it this way in our own, our own daily life context. This would be the equivalent of saying, in our family, we have dinner together every night. And so we don't miss it. 
In our family, we recycle because we care about the environment. In our family, we respect each other because love is important value to us. In our family, dad controls the remote because sports are more important than, right? No? Maybe you have a different family value. But values, right? Family values. The same thing in our country. In our country, we value democracy, so we will support and practice democracy. In our family, in our country, we believe in the value of free health care and education for everybody. In our country, we believe in paying taxes. Doesn't mean you have to like it, but we believe that it's something that happens. You see, there's these values. We are a part of something together, and so we abide by it. And so from this perspective... Our obedience or abiding by the laws and the systems of our land and our home come because of a shared value, because of a shared identity that we have with others who are part of that and by our participation in it. And by doing that, it distinguishes us from other families, from other countries, from other communities who don't share the same values. Therefore, if we are in a meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ, we will follow his teachings We will participate in our common calling, not to avoid hell, not to avoid some sort of punishment that we're fearful of, not to prove our worthiness of heaven, but rather as an expression of the shared identity that we have with him, an expression of the shared values, and because we want to participate in the kingdom of God of which we belong. And from the start of Jesus' ministry, that was his primary message. We find this in the first words that are recorded that Jesus spoke in the book of Mark. The very first words that Jesus spoke, book of Mark chapter 1. It says, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near. Now the kingdom of God is this idea that it's been understood that the rule and the reign of God exist over all of creation. But now because of Jesus' arrival and because he defeated the forces of evil and he defeated the consequences of sin, that all who would acknowledge him, all who would acknowledge that they are sinners in need of a savior and turn from their sinful ways, turn towards him and begin following him because of those decisions and if they would be willing to do that, that they would become citizens of this kingdom that has come near. And therefore, the kingdom of God has come near because the rule and reign is not just over all of creation in a general sense, but now the rule and reign of God exists in our hearts and it exists in our individual lives as we come into relationship with the Father through the Son. Now, at times, we mistake this idea of the kingdom of God as a future reality, as something that we're just sort of in a holding pattern, just waiting to experience one day. When I think about this, it reminds me of when sometimes when Nadine and I book a vacation, and maybe you can relate to this too, where you kind of dream of where you want to go, and then you do some research, and then you find the perfect place. So you book it, you pay for it, and then you wait like nine months for, for the actual departure date. So from the time you booked it to the time you actually go, there's this in-between period. And what do you do? You just kind of go about with your regular life. You might download an app on your phone that counts down the days and plays little fun tunes when it's getting closer. You might do some research on some excursions you're going to do when you get there. But for the most part, there's this period of waiting and anticipation for that departure date to arrive. 
You see, that's not how the kingdom of God works. There is a future fulfillment of the kingdom. There is a future fulfillment when we get to heaven that we will not be able to fully experience until then. But that's not what the kingdom of God is like in its entirety. And this is why it's important for us to understand the importance of our common calling. Because we're called into the kingdom of God. We are citizens of the kingdom of God if we've made that first initial profession, which has an impact upon today, upon how we live our lives and how people experience us today as we obey the teachings of Jesus. And so if we're already living in the kingdom of God, because the kingdom has come near and exists in our hearts and our lives, that means that our lives today need to reflect the reality of that kingdom. They need to reflect the reality of the glory of God that can be shown through our lives and we can be a living example of the kingdom to the world around us. Have you ever thought that West Meadows is a kingdom community? We are a kingdom community. A community that exists to reveal the love, the truth, and the grace of God to one another and to our neighbors. We're a kingdom community. Have you ever thought of that? And that when the world sees us, they shouldn't see us in a holding pattern. It's kind of waiting for Jesus to come back or for me to die and go meet him first. But when the world sees us, they should see us as a representation of eternity. That when the world comes into our midst in this place or as we go out into their places, we bring with us a glimpse of heaven. Because we're already living in eternity. We're already citizens of the kingdom. And our lives can reflect that. And it reflects it when we follow our common calling, obeying the teachings of Jesus. Now, historically, churches haven't done a great job of that, though. There are some fantastic people who have done a good job of that. But historically, if you look at Christendom over, over a long period of time, Churches have historically not done a great job of that because quite often there's a lot of conflict that shows up within these kingdom communities. One example of this we find in Scripture is in the church in Rome. And Paul, when he wrote his letter to the church in Rome, the book of Romans, he's addressing in part of that an argument that had broken up amongst this particular kingdom community because they're discussing, well, how do we do that? How do we live together as a kingdom community? How do we reveal to the world around us what that looks like to be a kingdom community? To give you a bit of history and background to what's happening here, this, this church in Rome was made up of, of Jews and Gentiles, people who had both heard the good news of Jesus Christ and had come together upon that basis. And the place that they would commonly come together was in the synagogues. And so historically, you had the Jewish people who were following this Jewish faith, awaiting the, the coming Messiah, who would practice that faith in that place. And now Gentiles were coming in because the Jews were starting to understand that Jesus was the Messiah. Their worship place didn't change. They stayed there, but now they added Gentiles into that. And the thing that bound them together was their faith in Jesus, that they were followers of Christ. And they had a shared faith. And they had shared goals of serving one another and of loving one another and a shared goal of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. But, but the Jewish people had always followed the Mosaic law. And it was restrictive in certain ways on how they lived their lives. And they were trying to abide by these things still. And then the Gentiles came in and they felt no need. 
They felt no need to observe these, these laws that had existed. And they felt a greater sense of religious liberty, if you will, onto how to live those things out. And what you end up with is a group of people who are all trying to follow Jesus, have a genuine faith and commitment in him, and are trying to follow him together, but completely different ideas on how to do it. And it escalates to the point where they start condemning one another. The word that Paul uses in his letter to refer to this is, is, is crino. They're, they're crinoing one another, which means that they're pronouncing doom upon other people within that faith. They're, they're basically saying, as, as they pronounce this doom upon them, they're saying that I'm denying your right to salvation because of the practices you're still following, or I'm denying your right to salvation because you're not following these practices that I think should be there. So you get a sense of the friction that's happening in this church in Rome. It, it reminds me of uh, a couple years back when I was working with another pastor, uh, a guy named Sid. And Sid and I were very different people. Uh, both pastors firmly committed to, to the church and to ministry and to the furtherance of those things. And Sid, every year, would take a group of youth to Mexico for a, a missions trip. And so I had a marriage conference coming up where I had a lot of people coming and I needed to serve them lunch. Now, part of the registration fee included money for lunch. So I thought, hey, I can get Sid and the youth to prepare the lunch, give them some money towards their missions trip, and we got a happy connection between different ministries, and it's going to go wonderfully well. So Sid eagerly agrees to do so, and I asked him about three months out. He said, yeah, no problem. We have lunch looked after. So we get about six weeks away from the event. I'm like, Sid, how's your plans for lunch coming? It's looked after. He says, what does that mean? It means it's looked after. All right. So I went to about four weeks ahead of time. Sid, how's your plans? Have you got your crew together? Have you got plans for what you're going to make? Do you know who's going to do what and who's going to serve it and how it's going to go? It's looked after, he'd say. You can start to get the sense there's two different personalities that are taking place here. You see, I'm the type of person who likes to plan things. I have things scheduled and organized, and, and this happens three weeks out and two weeks out and one week out, and this happens the day of and then three hours beforehand, and, and it is like a fine oiled machine. Sid, not so much. So I'm trying to work with this, and I'm getting extremely frustrated and upset, and even a little, little tinge of anger is coming in there because I'm thinking this, like, this could just torpedo this entire marriage conference we're going to be in if it doesn't happen. Well, to cut to the end of the story, the day of the meeting, or the day of the conference shows up. Everyone arrives, and it comes time for lunch, and there is an incredible spread of food just out for everybody. Nobody had any clue of the conflict and the challenges behind the scenes because they just went to the table, and they had more than they could. They, they just filled themselves in this wonderful lunch and were just raving on how wonderful of a job it was. And see, I came to understand in this situation that Sid's not a bad guy. Sid was not wrong, he was just different on how he went about things. What was important is that he and I had a shared goal. We had the shared goal and the same, same values, that we had to have quality food, we had to have the right quantity of food, it had to be served well, we had to host them well, it had to be on time, we had to meet the objectives of the event, and he did. We just had completely different ways of going about it. But see, going through this, this, this relationship with him early on in, in our time together as, as employees together, I learned to trust him. And I learned to appreciate him that when he says he's going to do something, he's on my team. And he's going to do it completely differently than I did it. But it's going to get done. It's going to get done well. And it's going to be a win in the end for what we're trying to achieve. 
And so there's no need to prejudge or to condemn him. In the same vein, Paul weighs into this debate that exists within Rome where these turbulent waters are taking place. And he begins by stating to them, he begins by saying, accept the ones whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Now he uses this weak and strong language in Romans 14 and, and it, it's not a matter of weak and strong belief. Remember, they have shared belief. This is people who are committed followers of Christ. What he's talking about here is he's defining between those who are weak and strong and their convictions about faith. Saying that those who are strong in faith are those who are experiencing more freedom. They have strong faith, so they're experiencing more freedom. They feel less bound by these rules and regulations that exist. And so he's saying, accept those who are weak in faith without quarreling over disputable matters. See, Paul's main concern here is that all of them welcome brothers and sisters in Christ together in open arms, and that they preserve and work towards unity and love together, and that when differences exist, that they don't jump all over each other, that they don't have this type of conflict when they don't see eye to eye or see things differently. Now, this doesn't mean that religious liberty extends to everything because there are still some non-negotiables. And we see in Paul's other writings very clearly that he has very strong language when the non-negotiables start to get infringed upon. He, he basically, like in, you can find these on your own if you were to go do a bit of a Bible study on it, but his summary of those statements to people who are infringing upon the non-negotiables, he's like, stop it, and if you don't stop it, we're going to have nothing to do with you. And so there's much, much stronger language when the non-negotiables are infringed upon. But that's not the issue in this community. In this community, he's talking about these debatable practices. And so he says to them finally in verse 17, to all of those who accepted the highest calling, to all of those who are committed followers of Jesus Christ, working towards the same goals and the same values and the same purposes, he says to them, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, of peace, and of joy in the Holy Spirit. So if the kingdom communities are not about these debatable matters, and we can understand that there are some non-negotiables that exist, I want to spend the rest of our time here today talking about what are those non-negotiables. What are some of these things that, that exist in our common calling that we do need to be focusing upon? There's so many things that we could choose to make the message, but would just get in the way of God's true message. There's so many things we could debate about. We could debate about, you know, what do you eat and what do you wear and I don't like your hairstyle and, and things like that. I don't like the way that you, you know, at our church we serve communion every week. Well, at our church we do it monthly. At our church we use grape juice. At our church we use wine. Is that the issue or is what communion is about and the fact that we practice it as a fellow believers what it's about? So what are these core foundational matters? I want to have a look at a couple of them here today as we head towards wrapping up our time together. Now, each of these could be a sermon unto themselves. And we definitely don't have time for that. Either way, I was really tempted, though, <laughs> to jump into them. We're only going to be able to take a brief look at them. And if you want to dig more into this, these questions and these verses will show up on our small group material that goes along with our sermon series. Uh, and on our website, when you click on the link for Watch the Sermon, there's a link on that page it takes you to where you can download the small group curriculum. And so if you are in one of those communities that is walking through the sermons, uh, you, you'll find that these questions show up for you to dig a little more into on your own, uh, either on your own time or as a group in, uh, in the days ahead here. I also want to mention this is not an exhaustive list. There are more non-negotiables than I'm going to be able to pull out for us here today. And, but these are some central ones I want us to focus upon. And if you do come across other ones, and you're sure, is, is it in this disputable matters category or is it a non-negotiable? The way you'll quite often know 
is by two quick tests you can run on it. Number one, does it come up a lot in Scripture? Like when Paul talks about love one another, he talks about these one another's a lot. So that's usually a good indication that that's not meant to be just a descriptive example of a church of a particular time and place, but it's more of a prescriptive thing that exists for all churches of all times and places. Another way to look is if you were able to get into a good version of the Bible, like a good English version of the Bible, or if you have the ability to go to a bit of a commentary, if something is written in the imperative, uh, and you go back to your English lessons for what imperative means, if it's written in the imperative, there's a good chance that it falls more towards that category of being one of these, these non-negotiable foundational type of things. Otherwise, there's a good chance it falls in the category of a description of a situation of a church of a particular context, time and place. Anywho, a little bit of a Heads up for what you can find on that yourself. So here's what we're going to do. We're talking today about being a kingdom community. And when I stand up here and you sit down there and, and I just sort of talk and teach about these things and you listen and, and wholeheartedly agree with everything that I say all the time, right? Maybe not. <laughs> it doesn't always feel like this kingdom community idea. So I have uh, taken a step of of just sort of somewhat randomly selecting some people in the congregation. We're going to invite to stand and read a piece of scripture. I'm going to give you like three or four sentences about that just to understand why that is part of our kingdom community. And we're going to go through a few of these. And I hope it gets a sense of, uh, of we're all in this together as a community kind of idea. So let's jump into this and look at, there's five of these that we're going to look at today uh, fairly quickly here. Let's start with our first one, which is the good news of Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ crucified, uh, found in 1 Corinthians 15. Verses 1 to 8. Who can read that for us? Thank you. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. Thank you. Central message of salvation. Jesus Christ crucified and victoriously raised from the dead. That we have a Savior who has defeated sin and death and one whom we can place our trust and our confidence in because of who he is and of what he accomplished. This is the critical initiatory profession of all followers of Jesus Christ. This is the means by which we have entrance into the community of God. But it's not the whole story. Because Christianity is more than just right thinking and right belief. This is so critically important. But it's not the whole story. You see, at times if we limit the gospel, if we limit the good news to just right thinking and right belief, we actually can rob it of discipleship. And Jesus so closely ties together that we need to receive, we need to believe, but then we also need to go and live that out. He ties these things together for us. And at times we're guilty of, of talking about a, a Christian faith that is basically inactive, where we're just in that holding pattern of just waiting for him to come back or for me to die so I can go be with him first. But it's not about a passive sitting back. There's no such thing, I believe, as a Christian who is not also a follower of Jesus Christ. 
it's not possible for us to call him Savior, but not call him Lord every day as well. So let's have a look at the second verse that, that impacts that a little bit for us. Uh, who can read for us Luke verse nine, chapter 9, verse 23 to 26? Thank you. You know, there are some places in the world where making that profession of faith would, would truly, literally be risking your life. We live in Canada, where we don't fully have a comprehension of what that looks like. But the question still remains, are we willing to surrender our wills and our desires for the things of God? This is the start of that daily walk. After we make that initiatory profession of faith, our daily walk thereafter, are we willing to surrender our will and our desires for the things of God? If we say yes, there's still a cost. There's a cost to salvation we're told to look into. Are we willing to do that, even if it means we will lose friends? Even if it means we will lose family? We don't want to. That's not the goal. But if that's the outcome that they choose because of our profession of faith, are we willing to? Are we willing to take up that cross and bear that cross daily if it means it's going to affect our status, if it's going to affect our job, if it's going to affect our ability to to be on the team? What if it's going to cost us some reputation? What if it's going to cost us popularity? What if it's going to have an impact upon how we spend our recreational time? You see, Jesus didn't promise that all of these things would happen. He didn't promise, if you follow me, life's going to suck. He didn't say that. He says, you'll experience life to the full. But the question remains, are you willing even if, even if it costs you these things, are you willing to take up the cross? Are we seeking to build and promote our own kingdoms? Or are we promoting his kingdom as a kingdom community? But here's the encouraging part that goes with this, is that we're not in this alone. Is that he brought us into community because he knew that we would need each other. And so we find that there's also a command here to have love for other followers, which we find in John 13, verses 34 and 35. In a way, this wasn't a new commandment. Uh, Jesus was saying here that love would be the special bond that ties us together. That Jesus' ministry was a display of this love that is really only found in kingdom communities. The world doesn't know this love. But when the world sees a follower of Jesus Christ living in that kingdom community who's seeking to be about to represent and to promote the things of Christ, they should be able to experience that love and be drawn towards it. We need a community. The world will not often love us. We need each other to be a place to refresh, to renew, to come together, to be bound together. And Jesus knew that even in his absence, and he was going to leave his followers, that if they found the love that they found in him, they could find in each other. And they could continue on in that unity. Not only for themselves, but that they could be the identifying mark for others who would come in. Because when the world sees that kind of love, it craves that kind of love. And therefore, it will know where to find it. It will find it in the kingdom communities, which is the extent of the next passage we look at in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 31, for us to have a love for our neighbors.
Thank you. See, the Mosaic law that this teacher of the law is referring to here was, it amounted to not just 10 commandments, but actually 613 commands that had been, had been found in, and put upon the Jewish people. And so his question here is valid. Which one's the greatest? I got 613. Can you, can you narrow it down for me a little bit, Jesus? Which one's the greatest? And so he says, loving God is of primary importance. This vertical relationship we have with God where we experience his love is of primary importance. But Jesus connects this love for God with love for others. That as we receive our love from God, that it so fills us, it so overwhelms us, that there's this outpouring on a vertical level towards other people. And therefore, all commands of teaching, all commands of scripture, everything within this common calling can be understood through the lens of love. The lens of love that God showed to us and through, and through his son, Jesus Christ. And one of the greatest ways that we can show love to the world around us is by showing them, demonstrating to them, inviting them to come find for themselves that life is better with Jesus. Which brings us to our final passage, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Thank you. The Great Commission. Jesus' final words as he, as he calls us specifically into that mission. that he, has, he isn't complete left to us. He is in it with us. The Spirit is working in people's lives around us. The Spirit is working in us, bringing opportunities to us. But as a kingdom community, we're to share the love and the hope of Jesus Christ that we've experienced, that we've come to know. We are to literally go out, and it, it, the little understanding of this verse is, as you go about your lives, so whatever places you're called to, whatever places you find yourself in, whatever spheres of influence, whatever neighborhoods, whatever schools, whatever workplaces, whatever teams, whatever clubs you find yourself in, as you go about your life, proclaim. Proclaim through word and proclaim through deed the love and the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. Teach people that life is better with him than they're experiencing without him. And when they make that profession of faith, baptize them so they can go public with their faith themselves as well and then continue the cycle and enter into this common calling that we all have. Ladies and gentlemen, at West Meadows, we are a kingdom community. I would love for that phrase to start taking root within our vocabulary that we are a kingdom community who exists for loving and for serving those who are around us, who are current citizens, but also those we're looking for more. We're looking to grow the kingdom. Our highest calling is to enter into relationship with the Father through the Son. If that is not a current reality in your life today, then we'll have prayer people at the front here who can come talk to you more about that and make sure that we have that, in, that conversation before you leave here today. That is the initial decision where you become a child of God. And when you become a child of God, you become a citizen of the kingdom. When you become a citizen of the kingdom, you're welcomed into the kingdom community. But all of us who have made that profession of faith have this common calling to not just passively kick back and wait for eternity, but to understand that we are actively, presently living in eternity and have an opportunity to obey Jesus Christ and therefore do so, not out of fear, not out of a sense of trying to validate our goodness or our worthiness of being in the kingdom, but because we are part of something. We are part of his mission. We're part of the call and the love that he has for all people so that we can go out and share the mission, to share the values, to share the goals, and reveal his truth and love to all, that they too may receive that highest calling. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to close our service here today, we, 
Lord, we've, we've come together for the purpose of proclaiming and glorifying who you are. But also, uh, I, I pray, Lord, coming to understand more deeply of what you have in mind for us as individuals and for us as a church. Because God, it is so clear in the lives and the stories that we share with one another, but also the, the events taking place here at West Meadows that you are not done with any of us yet that you have wonderful things planned for the days ahead that will bring glory to you, that will further your kingdom as you've invited us into it. I pray, God, we would come to understand what that means. If any who are here who have not made that decision, God, may the spirit within them in this moment just prompt them to say this is what you've been looking for and to take that step to pray with somebody today before they leave. For the rest of us, Lord, we're gonna walk out these doors in a moment, and I pray that as we do, we would have eyes to see what you are doing We'd have eyes to understand what you are calling us to and what it means to live as ambassadors of love and grace in the world around us. That people would see this kingdom community as something that gets their attention, that draws them in, that they too could come to know Jesus Christ. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.